playwrights teach us nothing about love. They make it pretty, they make it comical, or they make it lust. But they cannot make it true. Will Shakespeare has a play. Let's go and cough through it. Avant-Bard, Shakespeare in Love, take two. Marker. Welcome to Avant-Bard, a podcast where two theater nerds explore the highest highs and the lowest lows of works inspired by that upstart crow himself, William Shakespeare, William Shakespeare. My name is Megan Charlo, Megan Charlo, and I use she, her pronouns. And my name is Matthew James Marquez. Matthew James Marquez, <laughs> and I use he, him pronouns. All right, folks, uh, we gotta be level with you here. This is our second time recording a Shakespeare in Love episode. We did this like a month ago, and then we, I, it was all wrong. <laughs> the audio was messed up. In multiple ways. So we waited a month to regain our sanity. And feel better and happier again with this film. So this episode might be a little bit different because I'm not going to try to rediscover things with Megan. Like, I'm not going to try to be like, did you know that this thing happened? Because we do know and I'm not faking that shit. Yeah, I know your notes now. You can't surprise me. No, let's just do it, man. Let's just do it for for the fans, yep. for the listeners. Today we are talking about 1998's Shakespeare in Love. Again. A Miramax film written by Mark Norman and Tom Stoppard, directed by John Madden. Not that John Madden. We did the joke before, now we're doing yeah. it again. I went, oh, what? And you said, not that John Madden, and I pretended to be a sports fan. Shakespeare in Love is a historical dramedy set in Elizabethan England following young playwright William Shakespeare as he writes Romeo and Juliet and, well, falls in love. Screenwriter Mark Norman conceived the concept of the film and took it to Universal, where Edward Zwick, the producer, hated the script and then hired Tom Stoppard to punch it up. You know, Tom Stoppard. He was the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead guy. He can punch up a Shakespeare. I like his writing much more in this one. Julia Roberts was cast as Viola de Lesseps, and she really wanted Daniel Day-Lewis to play William Shakespeare. And because he couldn't do it, he didn't want to do it, she left the production six weeks before filming. In the first time we did this, I was like, man, thank God, because that sounds like a horrible cast. Yeah, I, I don't think Julia Roberts could have done this. I also don't want to see Daniel Day-Lewis do it. I think Daniel Day-Lewis could have done it. I just don't like it as much. I like our non-Voldemort brother. <laughs> we'll get there. So Universal dropped the film before it was picked up by Miramax and, lo and behold, absolute monster Harvey Weinstein. Miramax got the film running, and it was released on December 11th, 1998, eventually becoming a box office and critical smash. On a $25 million budget, the movie made around $290 million. This is like one of the best 
successes we've covered on the pod, isn't it? Yes, Megan. Jesus. And in addition to that, it won seven Academy Awards. Okay, so this is the best thing we've covered on the pod, technically, critically. Critically, the best thing we've covered on the podcast. Wait, well, wait. Ron probably doesn't count because it's not American. Yes. So, like, it wouldn't have been up for awards and shit. But combined critical and financial success and zing, zang zoom, you got a Shakespeare in love. It's the top one of that. So it won Academy Awards for Best Picture, Lead Actress, Supporting Actress, Original Screenplay, Art Direction, Costume Design, and Original Score. There is some controversy with its Oscar wins because people think that Weinstein pressured voters to choose Shakespeare in Love over Saving Private Ryan. I will say there are far more females in Shakespeare in Love. That is correct. Meaning like three. Hey, it's more. It's more. In addition to shooting at historical locations, the production built a large stage on a plot of land in Shepperton Studios near London. They wanted to create a little microcosm of Elizabethan England, and they indeed did that. 115 people made 17 buildings in three weeks, which obviously gave them the much-deserved Academy Award for Art Direction. I want to hop back to Saving Private Ryan for a second. Okay. So I feel like that film uh, was absolutely smashed by this film in the Oscars. But I I feel like culturally, Saving Private Ryan has affected society more. Probably. But that being said, I've never seen any of Saving Private Ryan, and I've seen this film multiple times. Megan, have you seen Toy Story 2? Yes. You've seen Saving Private Ryan. (laughs) I mean, I kind of believe you. (laughs) Woody gets taken to enemy lines... And when the people come to rescue him... The toys, excuse me. When the toys come to rescue him, they find out that he wants to stay. Which is the basic plot of Saving Private Ryan. He wants to stay? Private Ryan wants to stay? (laughs) Oh my god, we should watch Saving Private Ryan. (sighs) Yeah. In addition to the art direction win, Sandy Powell won for Best Costuming. In her work on the film, she had to show high society fashion and low society fashion, worked with source material, but deviated when she felt that style meant more than accuracy. Yeah, like, if you want someone to look like a queen to 20th century audiences, you gotta put more jewels on them than they had in the early modern period. And she did a really good job. Jeffrey Rush, who plays Henslow in the film, mentioned how Sandy Powell went to him and told him, Henslow seems like a one-suit kind of guy who wears just one suit out and about. You know, he's cheap, and so that's what they did. They gave him one kind of nice, kind of threadbare suit. Yeah, and I I definitely never saw that one, wow, he wears the same thing all the time. It just seemed natural. Yeah, so obviously she deserved her best costuming Oscar. Okay, Megan, it's time for Marquez's Acting Corner Speed Round. Yes, I already heard it once. Joseph Fiennes as William Shakespeare. His brother was Voldemort. Yes. His other brother's money? He has a very, very wealthy English family. I'm trying not to look at my notes, and I'm trying to remember things that you said. Yeah. 
Do you remember anything else? No. He plays Bassanio in the Al Pacino-led Merchant of Venice film. And in the same year as Shakespeare in Love, he played Lord Robert Dudley in the film Elizabeth. Two films taking place during Elizabeth's lifetime came out this year. Tom Stoppard said about casting Joseph Fiennes, our goal in casting William Shakespeare is believing he wrote the plays, which is a sentence that I'm sure makes sense to Tom Stoppard. I feel like it's a bit of a backhanded compliment. Like, you wouldn't say that about someone who's super hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He kind of needs to be, like, just kind of medium hot. Well, yeah, because he's a movie star, so he's got to be somewhat attractive. He's the lead (laughs) romantic lead. But, like... (laughs) If Shakespeare was hot, he wouldn't have written all this. You're right. Gwyneth Paltrow. Goop. She plays Viola de Lesseps in the film, and she owns Goop. She is also who in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Pepper Potts. Correct. Give me my carrot. Okay, here you go. John Madden said about Gwyneth Paltrow, Gwyneth Paltrow was a natural choice for me for Viola. All right, John Madden, except for the four other women that you had in line for Viola before Gwyneth Paltrow. It's natural. She said yes. Yep. All right, moving on. Jeffrey Rush is Philip Henslow. What do you remember about Jeffrey Rush? Uh, Pirates. Yeah, he was Barbosa in the Pirates of the Caribbean film. He's also in Elizabeth? Yes, as Sir Francis Walsingham. He's not in the King's Speech. He is in the King's he Speech. He is in the King's Speech? Yes. Colin, He's in the King's Speech. Colin Firth, who is also in this movie, is also in the King's Speech. Yeah. He's also a sex pest who's been accused several times and nothing has been made of it. Do you remember talking about that last time, Megan? No, I forgot that memory on purpose, <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Speaking of Colin Firth, Colin Firth. He was in the Pride and Prejudice with the hand... Yeah, thing, yeah, that, you, that moment. You remember that. He's in so many films. There's just too He's many. He's in the King's Speech as Colin Firth. Yeah, and he played William Shakespeare in Black Adder back and forth. I like that you just went, yeah, he was Colin Firth in the King's Speech. <laughs> he was Colin Firth in the King's Speech. <laughs> he was in Love Actually, What a Girl Wants, Mr. Darcy, Nanny McPhee, rated PG. Oh, God. Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, Kingsman, A Single Man. Megan doesn't remember any of these. I know we went through it. Because I've never seen any of these. Ben Affleck is Ned Allen. You know Ben Affleck. I do know Ben Affleck. He is in Dogma. Thank you. Last time, listeners, I'm going to tell you. Last time slash still to this day, Marquez didn't have Dogma in his notes. I said he was a Kevin Smith actor because I didn't want to name every Kevin Smith movie. No, but Dogma's the more important one. Oh, you want me to go through? He's in Dogma. He's in Mallrats. He's in Jersey Girl. He's in that one about lesbians you remember he was in armageddon yeah it's the one with Liv tyler in front of an airplane yeah they're making out he's daredevil oh yeah i think i forgot that last time too yeah and he was he's batman in the snyderverse he is and uh he was in argo and gili which he didn't remember last time anyway that's it judy dench is queen elizabeth the first she was titania once upon a time in a midsummer night's dream She's a stage actress. I know her as being Dame Judi Dench. Yep. She was Mistress Quickly in Kenny Branagh's Henry V. She was Hecuba in Kenny Branagh's Hamlet. How do you think he feels about you calling him Kenny? Oh, we're best friends. Oh, okay. And she was M in James Bond. End of acting corner. I have a point to make about Judi Dench later. Oh, okay. I have a point to make right now. Yeah. This film's rated R? (laughs) Yes, Megan. This film's rated R. There's boobies in it. 
I feel like we've seen so many more films that are worse than this and probably weren't rated R. I think the Macbeth one is the only one that comes to mind that is rated R. Macbeth, Macbeth. The Michael Fassbender Macbeth. That's the only other one I can think of. Like two less boobies. But to be fair, Zulfikar, don't know the- That's true. We don't know the rating of any of the international films. Yeah. Because they're international films, so it's not the same. I just feel like if you told me, hey, Megan, Shakespeare in Love is rated R, I'd be like, go home. (laughs) That's not accurate. They also use the F word a lot. They do, though? If not the F word, then a myriad of swears. (laughs) That I think that having so many would rate. Yeah, but it's old times. Back when that's allowed. Back when magic happens in dragons. In Dragon Time, Megan, it's a part of the podcast. In Use- Dragon Time, you're allowed to swear however much you want without it being rated R. That's G. Yes, you are correct, Megan. In Dragon Time, you can swear. Too bad. London, 1593 is not Dragon Time. Start the film. At this point in history, I want to make note. We know that Shakespeare wrote Henry VI, Richard III, Titus, Taming of the Shrew. Maybe Comedy of Errors, maybe Two Gentlemen of Verona, and even less maybe Edward III, because God knows who wrote it. I am surprised that Richard III is here, because that one of all of them is a good play. Yeah, the others could use some work. So we get this information from text on the screen. We also learn from the text that there are two playhouses fighting it out for writers on Elizabeth's stages. So here's the thing. Already, this film is more accurate than Anonymous. Yep. They talk about how the two playhouses are the Curtain, which is home to Richard Burbage, the most famous actor in England, which, like, yeah. And the Curtain in real life was built by his father, so, like, yeah. And that's the one that becomes the globe. When they tiptoe it across the Thames in the middle of winter. And I want you to remember that it is likely the site of the premiere of Romeo and Juliet. Mm, I'll keep that in mind. And Marlowe was its main playwright. And then across the river is Philip Henslow's Rose, which is all accurate. But the thing that they did miss is that the Rose sat outside of the jurisdiction of London's authorities, which obviously isn't great for plot, so they ignored that part. On the front of the Rose, we see a sign for the moneylender's revenge. It's funny because inside we see a moneylender getting revenge. Yeah, so it's a meta comment on what's happening. It's not a real play. It's what's really happening. Yeah, and so we see Philip Henslow getting tortured by Mr. Fennyman. For 16 pounds, 5 shillings, and more. Henslow promises, hey, I got a play coming up, and with the proceeds from that, we can pay you. Fennyman's like, alright, who's writing it? And Hansel's like, oh, William Shakespeare. And Fennyman's like, no, no, no. He's written some fucking stankers. I don't believe that you're going to pay me back. Yeah, he wrote Henry VI parts one, two, and three. Ooh. Taming of the Shrewd, that's romance? No, thanks. But no, don't worry. This next one's going to be a hit. It's called Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. I want to see this play, Megan. It includes pirates, mistaken identity. Pretty sure it's actually Twelfth Night. Fennyman asks for all the profits for this play, to which Henslow responds, what am I going to pay the actors? And Fennyman tells him, 
with the profits from the play. It's funny because it's like, hey, you want a royalty share? And this begins the trope of this film is very meta about acting. Yeah, the screenwriters both wanted to showcase how these playwrights and theater owners were basically creating Hollywood is what they wanted to showcase. And one way they want to do that is screwing over actors. So Hensler's like, don't worry, Billy Shakes is on it. He's almost done with his play right now, I'm sure. And we cut to... He's just writing his name a bunch. Which is funny because a big argument that anti Fordians have is that we don't have a copy of his signature. It's not consistent. Neither's mine. And we learn here that Joseph Fiennes is a pretty fine Shakespeare. So Henslow is like, you need to write faster. And Shakespeare's like, I need my muse. As always, Aphrodite. And Henslow's just like, Aphrodite, the sex worker? <laughs> and it's funny. Yeah. Because it's a play on muses and how much <laughs> William Shakespeare liked to sleep with ladies, according to this. Yeah, this movie posits a very important question, Megan. What if Shakespeare was hot? But not too hot, but hot. hot. And knew how to please a lady. Anyway, the theaters are closed. They've been closed for the past 12 weeks because of the plague. What? Timing. COVID. <laughs> yeah, I'm not getting... <laughs> I can't. I said it way better last time, and I can't remember what I but said. But don't try. <laughs> I won't try anymore. And the thing is, that's true. That did happen in this year, back in the 1590s, the, the Theaters were closed until spring of 1594. But, like, we don't get any more of the plague in the story. They don't, like, bring out their dead or anything. But it's still accurate. And I have to give them props because it's, again, the first scene, basically, and already more accurate than anonymous. So we get a couple of tiny bits, basically, where Shakespeare is walking through jolly old England. And in this, we get a priest. And he's got a little something to say about the theater, Megan. The rose smells thusly rank by any name. I say a plague on both their houses. And we see our sexy Shakespeare go, let me just put that in my brain bank for later. The reason why Shakespeare's walking through London is he needs to go see a certain someone. He's struggling over words, words, words. He goes to Dr. Moth, an apothecary. Moth? Like... Moth? in a Midsummer Night's Dream. Also, what the hell? He gets a therapist? I don't even get a therapist. <laughs> I do like they do this little anachronism where it's like, well, Freudian psychology does not exist yet, but it still kind of exists. And like Will saying a bunch of things about writing that really seems like innuendo. For example, it's as if my quill is broken, as if the organ of my imagination has dried up, as if the proud tower of my genius has collapsed. Talking about his penis. Nothing comes. And the doctor is very interested in this. It's like trying to pick a lock with a wet herring. He can't get it up. 
The pen, that is. And then we find out about his wife. And kids at And home. it's also accurate information except for the fact that he's like, and then I was banished and I cannot be with my wife for my banishment, which makes no sense. Why was he banished from his legal wife? I think what he's intending is saying that his wife told him that he can't be at home. Why? Because he, they didn't like each other. Go write about the boys you think are cute somewhere else. We learn two things before we get to the next scene. One, Shakespeare is in love with Richard Burbage's costume woman. Named Rosaline. Yes. And the apothecary says, take this dragon bracelet and put your name in it and give it to the person you love and everything will work out. Sure. Possibly the weakest plot moment of the film. Two, we learn that Richard Burbage offered William Shakespeare a partnership in his theater if he has 50 pounds. Will this point come up again? Yes. Barely. Will it come up with any sort of urgency? No. Will there be much context given when it comes up again? No. No. They expect you to remember this point that I didn't even note. (laughs) It's not necessary. That's the thing. It's not necessary for the whole movie to understand what's happening, but uh, it's a weak part of this film. So Will goes to Burbage's house, is like, oh man, there's that hot seamstress, Rosaline. I know that Burbage is also having sex with her. And she's just like, mmm, you have my heart though. Meanwhile, slash the scene is interrupted by two gents being performed at the castle for Queen Elizabeth and the court. Yes. And Henslow is watching and he's like, man, this dog bit, that's what people want. They want comedy and a dog. And I can't say he's wrong. So during the Valentine bit where he's like, what light is light if Sylvia be not by? Like, whatever the words are. The queen's asleep. It's boring. But, you know, who isn't asleep? Some blonde chick who's going to grow up to be Pepper Potts. Viola de Lesseps. What? Viola? Like in Shakespeare. Yeah, Twelfth Night. She has this memorized, which makes no sense. It's fine, Mike. I <laughs> will not stand for it. Last time I was upset and you tried to explain it to me and I still don't believe it. I don't think she could have this memorized. There wasn't a script that she could look up online and quote to herself. She is just naturally gifted, Megan. Oh, natural talent. You have natural talent. Megan, fuck you. No, 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 Megan. Fuck you. You are the individual who has told me before that somebody said that you speak iambic pentameter in the correct way without ever having scanned it. Oh, yeah, I don't think about it. That's right. That did happen. We have had that conversation with strangers. Yeah. I say words like a sentence. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're supposed... You can't try. It. It's the strangest thing about Shakespeare. You can't try. try. If you try, it's bad Shakespeare. But if you don't try, it's also not good. It's a little <laughs> bit of both, and that's what makes it it's so beautiful. beautiful. So, we find out that this blonde chick who's going to become Pepper Potts is Viola, and she's just like, man, nurse... I wish that women could play women because men suck at being women. They don't know anything about love. All I want to do is go to the playhouse. And the nurse is like, 
No, 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 you're rich. Also, Lord Wessex, ooh, because Lord Wessex wants to marry her. The nurse is played by Imelda Staunton, who played Umbridge in the Harry Potter movies. I literally already forgot that between last recording and this one. Well, I'm I'm glad to tell you that, Megan. But Vile is like, no, I don't want to marry Lord Wessex. I want poetry and love as there has never been in a play. Also, I want to be an actor in Elizabethan England when it's not allowed. Two points. If both of the men are gay, they could probably showcase true love on the stage, Viola. She's very close-minded. Two. Come on, Viola. Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, was writing poetry in court around this time. So don't tell me that the men of court don't have poetry in their hearts. Because listen, I will grant that he probably wrote some pretty okay poetry. But guess what? All of that is based in fact. So I will give the Earl of Oxford that. So go date him, Gwyneth. Paltrow. (laughs) Oh, also we see William Shakespeare, after he gave the thing to Rosalind, he starts writing. He's like, I've got the juices in my system now. I know it's gonna work. And, you, oh man, he pulls up a stool, Megan, and you think he's gonna sit on it the right way, but he doesn't. He turns it around and he sits on it the wrong way. Basically, the Elizabethan version of turning your chair around and saying, what's up, kids? We cut to the Rose and Fennyman's gonna kill Henslow because he hasn't gotten the money because the theaters aren't reopened. All of a sudden... Mr. Tilney comes in, who I guess is in charge of these sort of things. And it's just like, the theaters are open. Oh, Megan, you forgot one very important running gag. Oh, that's true. I forgot this last time as well. Yeah. You You just need to talk faster. (laughs) Megan, if it's not in your notes, it did not retain in your memory. No, that's why I have such notes. (laughs) So because the theaters are not open, you are correct. Fennyman is mad at Henslow and confronts him, and Henslow retorts that the show will happen. It's all gonna work out. It's all gonna work out. And when Fennyman asks, how do you know? Henslow goes, I don't know, it's a mystery. Just like our first recording, it obviously turned out fine. Just fine. Perfectly fine and available to the public. But anyway, right as he says that, Tilney comes in and is like, theaters are open again. And we're like, what? And William Shakespeare comes in and is like, I made great progress on Romeo and Rosaline. That's the new name now because I want everyone to know that I'm sleeping with someone I shouldn't be sleeping with because I don't know what operational security is. And then it turns out that Tilney, that guy who said the theaters are open, he opened the theaters because he's having sex with Rosaline, but he couldn't have sex with her because Burbage was home all the time because the theaters were closed. So he opened the theater so Burbage would leave so that he could have sex with Rosaline. Gasp. You want to know what Shakespeare decides when he finds this out? Screw Burbage. Forget that guy. I was going to give him my play because he offered me more money for it. And Megan and Marquez, I don't think, mentioned that earlier. Nope. But now I'm not gonna, because, see, it's already gone so fast, Megan and Marquez barely needed to mention it. And he goes to the pub and tells Henslow, all right, open auditions, let's go, Romeo and Ethel the pirate's daughter. Because it can't be Rosaline now, because she... Is sleeping with another man like she was with you. 
and everyone goes off to go start the open auditions, and Shakespeare is left alone in the bar. Or so we think. Who else is there, Megan? Kit! Kit Marlowe! Is that you, old boy? And he's just like, man, I got this play gonna gonna be up at the curtain called Dr. Faustus. You know it. Anyway, I got a new one coming up, Massacre of Paris, which was performed in 1593. So that would be this year coming up. So, okay. And Shakespeare said, good title. And then he's like, what are you working on, old boy, me lad? And Shakespeare goes, oh, Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. And Kit goes, ah, let me write the entire plot of that for you and change the names and give you the setting. As I said before in the previous recording, I don't like that they do this. No. We like when they do things like he's walking around and hears a preacher say something, Rose, any other name, smell, blah, 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 and plague on both your houses and go, oh yeah, I'll incorporate that into a different setting. I don't like this, which is once again being like, Shakespeare couldn't come up with shit. Yeah. It was Kit Marlowe. Like, I... But it's weird because this movie isn't trying to say that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, but it's like, well, Shakespeare doesn't come up with Shakespeare, though. I can understand it being like, well, he draws from everywhere, but maybe, just maybe, don't have Marlowe come up with the basic plot. Also, maybe, just maybe, this was a pre-existing story from history that many people had written before. Yeah, it was already an Italian poem. Anyway, we go to an audition montage, which I love in films. Yes. Because you get to see, like, people doing bad. And And you get to see a bunch of people doing the exact same monologue over and over again. And it's never your work. It's always someone else's play. Popular. I want to be popular. It's like if you went up and did popular for a musical audition song. Yeah. It would be tiresome. Because everyone does the Helen of Troy monologue from Dr. Faustus. And Shakespeare's like, I'm so sick of this. But then, who is this? A young lad who looks strangely like a young Pepper Potts. Thomas Kent. I have a fantastic monologue, I want to say. It's It's the best written thing ever. It's totally going to be something from Faustus, JK. It's Valentine's monologue. What? Shakespeare's like, that's my work. I'm so happy. And at the end of the monologue, he's so enthralled. He's like, take off your hat. Why? Because how do you know someone's a good actor until you see their hairline, Marquez? Oh, you're right. You got to size them up because acting is the only job that you can deny a person for how they look. God, I hate acting. I miss it. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Thomas Kent, she leaves. Yeah, she Uh, ran. It's Viola, guys, in case you missed it, with by my s- sly pepper pots comment. Yeah, she runs to a boat and takes it across the way, and then Shakespeare's like, follow that boat, like following that taxi. Yeah. You know, like, no- it's like, I gotta offer the main boy to this guy. When Shakespeare takes the ferry to follow Viola dressed as Thomas Kent, the ferryman says, Hey, are you an actor? I think I've seen you in something. And Shakespeare, like, 
rolls his eyes like, yes, I'm an actor. It's just basically like getting recognized in New York City. Especially because it's followed by him being like, I had Christopher <laughs> Marlowe in my taxi once. He must be so much better than you. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know his name. That's so funny. But where is this young lad going? <gasps> A fancy estate. A fancy house, knock, knock. Oh, nurse, I'm looking for Thomas Kent to give this script to because I want to cast Thomas Kent as my lead. And the nurse is like, oh, that's my nephew. Give me the script. Let's be real. Nurse is a real one. Nurse is the realest one. I want to make it clear. At no point does the nurse try to stop Viola from doing things. She doesn't judge her no. for doing it. She also isn't like, well, you know, one day you're going to get sexed on. You'll fall on your back like the nurse in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. You're like, she's entirely alone. She is entirely supportive, which is one thing about the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, where she, at first she's supportive. And then she's like, oh, my God, he killed your cousin. What's your problem? Yeah. No, this nurse is a real one. Anyway, the nurse is like, ugh, another play set in Verona? Come on. <laughs> Megan, I love that joke so much. It's very funny. It's just like a throwaway line, but I needed to write it down. It's, it's so she, good. It's also because Shakespeare sent like six plays in Verona. We cut to a party. It's a ball. It's a, like a masquerade deal. Just like maybe in Romeo and Juliet. And Lord Wessex is like, hi, my name is Paris. I would like a breedable sub, please. <laughs> and Mr. Delessis is just like, oh, ho, ho, my daughter is the most breedable sub. Yes. It's gross. Yeah, they are acting like she has a piece of meat. However, there is one line that I do like in this scene, which is having discussed this with her father, Lord Wessex goes up to Viola and says, I have spoken with your father. And she just goes, what of it? I speak with him every morning, which is so good. Just like, <sighs> bye. Not interested. That is the most I like her. But Marquez. What? You want to know what else is happening at this party? What? An uninvited strangers here. Romeo? Shakespeare. Oh, it's even sexier. He's like watching her from across the dance floor like, oh my God, that girl's so pretty. She teaches the torches how to burn bright. And he's just like in awe of her. And then it's so good. And it's so obvious he's interested in her. So much so that Lord Wessex is like, hey, leave her alone. I got dibs. And Will's like, I'm Kit Marlowe. Bye. I need to bring up this point now. Yeah. I like how they're both just kind of medium hot. Yes. We've mentioned his medium hotness before, but she's also kind of medium hot. Yeah. Like, they're not like tongue wagging wolf from a cartoon. Yeah, it's not like back in the day they'd be like, it's Matt Damon. Matt Damon, is he a, was he thought of as a hot boy? It's not like it's like, this is Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer Lopez, yeah. I more attribute it to today, films today in which every single male star needs to have a body like Chris Evans or screw you, you don't get to be in movies. Like you need to have the perfect body to be a lead actor in anything. Back on topic, Lord Wessex like, okay, nice to meet you, Kit Marlowe. I will cut your throat anon. Goodbye. And then Shakespeare's like, fine, I leave, I leave, I leave. Except... Except. He goes around to the balcony 
where Violet Delessup's on the balcony being like, Romeo, Romeo. But it's because she's like, Romeo, I'm going to be Romeo. Whoa, so good. It's great. And they basically just do the balcony scene. Like the nurse is constantly calling her in and she says a non-nurse, a non. She tells him you will be killed if you are caught. And he goes, I don't care. I think that you're amazing. And it's just good. And then he like goes back to his place and you see him just writing up a storm. Because obviously he's just like, uh, I just came up with the whole party scene and balcony scene. Yeah. Because it just happened to me and I'm going to write it now. Also would like to state, and I said this last time, that I love, 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 love that they are star-crossed not by family, but by class. Because it's so much more understandable and... It's realer. It's more real and it's more difficult. Yeah, it's more difficult to cross class lines than have families forgive each other. Yeah. Because both Romeo and Juliet belong to the same class in the play. And, you know, Viola DeLessips is a member of an emerging merchant class. They basically bought their nobility... And the reason why the dad is marrying off Viola to Lord Wessex is Lord Wessex has a name. Yeah, he's a lord. And she'd become a lady, like an official lady. And what the the Lessips have is money from Merchant Tree. It's that classic corpse bride plot where you have to marry for reasons. And Shakespeare cannot offer anything besides love. And that makes it so palpable. Yes. So we cut back to the rose. Yes. And all the actors are like, oh, everything's so weird. I'm not used to being an actor. Things are changing so much. I thought this was supposed to be a funny play. And the person playing the nurse is like, I was a pirate king. Now I'm a nurse. That's funny. (laughs) It is funny. So Shakespeare begins describing the plot of this new play to the players. And... Fennyman is there, just looking at his investment, and he asks Henslow, what's what's Shakespeare doing? And Henslow goes, oh, the author is giving a speech. It's something he likes to do. It's harmless, so we let him do it. And Fennyman's like, ah, hell no. I'm banking this play. I will tell them what's what. And he goes up there and he starts yelling at the actor saying, listen, you sniveling slime balls. You better act and act good. And then, Megan... Hold the door open for the Admiral's men who have returned. And they are led by... Ned. Ned Allen. Ned Affleck. Ned Affleck. (laughs) He's the best. He's incredible. He is full of himself. In the best way possible. The best. So, so handsome. Thought you were just going to say so handsome, which also, yeah. Yeah, he's pretty handsome. But man, he's just like, who is this guy jabbering? And the money lender goes like, who are you? And he just goes, I am Faustus. I am Barabbas. I am all of these roles. And oh, also, I was Henry and you're a play too. Yeah, okay, yeah, Shakespeare got to throw one to you. I'll throw one here because you are the director. And Ned goes, and what is your purpose? And Fennyman goes, I'm the money. And Ned double takes and goes, then you can stay. 
It's funny. And then all of the people who are at open auditions lose their roles. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Basically. I mean, mostly it's just this little kid who was going to be Juliet. But now, of course, Sam, who's always the females, is going to be Juliet. But because Shakespeare doesn't want to lose Thomas Kent, who he just gave the role to, he's not going to give Ned Allen Romeo. So when Ned asks what they're performing, William Shakespeare describes the character of Mercutio and how he's great. And then Ned's like, and what is the name of this play? And Shakespeare goes, Mercutio. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's great. And he goes outside. And the kid who is going to be Juliet is like, oh, I wanted to be a part. I like plays, but mostly I like murder. And Shakespeare says, you boy in the street, what's your name? John Webster. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a funny joke if you are in the know of theater. Because John Webster wrote several very gory plays. But if you're not in the know, the joke doesn't land. It's just like, all right, that kid's name is John Webster. Moving on. Mate, I wish that in the film he said it like you said it. (laughs) John Webster. (laughs) (laughs) Petting his rat. Yeah. Uh, So he goes back to rehearsal. And there's a very great... Oh, because uh, Thomas Kent didn't show up earlier. We forgot to mention that. Oh, yeah. Thomas Kent wasn't there. And Shakespeare was like, I don't know what the heck is going on. But then it's like, okay, Thomas Kent's here. We're going to start rehearsal now. And there is this really fun moment, in my opinion, of like typical actor, typical director conversation. Because Viola starts performing the first scene that Romeo shows up in where he's like, ah, me. And Shakespeare's like, you know what this is like? And Val's like, uh, yes, sir. Do you really, though? Uh, no, sir. <laughs> yeah, because I believe the bit is is that he doesn't want her to profess Romeo's love for Rosalind that much because if you spend it all on Rosalind, how are you going to... Spend it when you meet Juliet. And the thing that's funny about that is that that part of the script hasn't happened yet. So Rosalind seems like the girl of the play. And then Will's just like, well, you were supposed to know what I haven't written yet. (laughs) Which is pretty funny. (sighs) We get a little tidbit of Marquez's favorite thing in the movie, which is as Shakespeare explains that Romeo is going to meet his true love. We see in the background that Mr. Fennyman, the moneylender, is very interested in this theatrical fusion going on. And I am a sucker for this, Megan. I'm a huge sucker for this. This is going to be my favorite thing. I want to just take note of every time that Mr. Fennyman gets lost in it because it is a microcosm of how the power of theater is transformative. And I'm a big baby. So before leaving rehearsal, Shakespeare's like, Tommy, Tommy boy, I got this letter for Viola. I know you guys live together. Please give it to her. It's actually a sonnet. It's like, hmm, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? She'll get it. Thomas Kent's like, yes, I will give it to that separate person who is not me. And Viola goes to go home. And who's waiting for her? 
But Lord Wessex, ooh. And he is so upset. And she almost leaves her mustache on. Oh my God. A nurse, real one, looking out and it's like, wipe the mustache off, hurry. And we learn here that they've made the decision without Viola. Wessex is going to marry her. They're going to go to America to check on Lord Wessex's uh, tobacco plantation. Which didn't exist at the time. Don't talk about it. It's okay. She slaps him. It's great. She doesn't love him, but it's already decided for her. And Viola needs to be inspected by the queen, which shall be done Sunday. How many days away is Sunday? I don't know. It's got to be soon. At least seven or less. And she writes a very sad letter to William Shakespeare, like, I am required to marry Lord Wessex. And so I cannot love you. But Thomas Kent's going to keep going to rehearsals. Yeah, I mean, she's still got to act. And then we get the greatest song in film history, Mr. Kent. (laughs) Okay, so we get a montage of rehearsals. And one of them is they're practicing the dance for the party scene, which Shakespeare was a part of already. It's the same dance that you saw earlier in the movie. It's clever. And because, like, in the earlier bit, Viola's used to being the woman in the dance, Thomas Kent keeps messing up how to do the dance. It's a little joke that I think is beautiful. And Ned's like, he's keeping you a time. lady? What's up? Megan, do it. Oh, you do it. Okay. Gentlemen upstage, ladies downstage, are you a lady, Mr. Kent? Anyway, that's so good. Anyway, I love that. It's my favorite moment in the movie. And then Ned's like, uh, Billy, I gotta talk to you about something. What is it? Where the hecky Becky is Mercutio in this play? Shakespeare's like, Don't worry about it. He's a dynamic secondary character. He disappears for the length of a Bible. (laughs) Yeah, because Shakespeare explains like, don't worry. You've got a beautiful combination of sword and word. I've given you great speeches like the Queen Mav speech, which Marquez and Meghan definitely love and don't hate. And Ned's just not happy. This is a play called Mercutio. Yeah. And anyway... Thomas Kent gives William Shakespeare the letter. William Shakespeare is just like, what does she mean? What does she mean she's going to get married? Oh, well, she has to. She wants to. So goodbye. If she wanted to, why are her tears staining the letter? And they get into a boat because Thomas wants to go home after rehearsal, but Shakespeare's following because he won't take no for an answer. Then there's like this very much as you like it Rosalind moment, basically, where Thomas Kent's like, Tell me how you would woo Viola de Lesse. Pretend I am your Viola. And Shakespeare's like, oh, I love this about her. I love that about her. And it's pretty cute to start off with. But then he starts talking about how great it is to kiss her, which he never did. And he talks about how great her breasts are, which he never saw. And it's just basic poet learning. Then he says, for one kiss, I would defy a thousand Wessexes. And, and that, Viola's back in. Yeah, I'm back in too. And Viola, a.k.a. Thomas Kent at this point, leans in and kisses him. And then jumps off the boat and runs inside the big house. And the ferryman's like, oh, that Viola de Lessif's dressing like a boy. I knew her when she was this tall. 
And it's a funny joke because the ferryman totally recognized her disguise. And it's kind of a bit about like suspension of disbelief yeah. in the theater. Where it's like Lois Lane being like, hold on a second. Clark Kent and Superman are the same guy. I spend a lot of time with the other one. Yes. And Shakespeare's like, oh, good. I'm not gay. Well. <laughs> but I am bisexual. And he runs after Violet Kent, Thomas DeLessif. <laughs> And there's just this whole, like, I know it's you. Oh, my, you've caught me. Let's have sex. Well, he's like, could you really want to be with me, even though I'm poor and I'm not a lord? And then, for all of us Stratfordians, she says, are you the author of the plays of William Shakespeare? To which William Shakespeare replies, No, I just, I just stole the plays of the Earl of Oxford. I'm on the from, Queen. I'm from Anonymous. I'm the Shakespeare from Anonymous. We switch places down the stairs. To which William Shakespeare actually says, I am. And then they have sex. Yeah, and the nurse is like, ooh, those are sex sounds. And she puts a rocking chair in front of the door and pretends to rock it to the sounds of the sex bed. Because she's a real one. And, and another <laughs> another person in the household comes to bring something for Viola, and the nurse just rocks harder. And it's just like, move along. <laughs> I'm just here rocking. And they stop having sex, and Viola's like, wow, something is better than Shakespeare. His penis. <laughs> <laughs> hey megan yeah they say that sex is great but have you ever had sex <laughs> so it's morning time and she's like let's keep having sex <laughs> and then they back and forth do the whole romeo and juliet scene of like it's the owl no 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 it's the lark no go go back to sleep stay stay having sex with me but it's funny because she's like no 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 it's not and then he's just like man all right, I'll have sex with you. And then she's like, wait, no, I want to go act. It's the lark. Get out. Well, it's funny because he says, well, I haven't written the next scenes yeah, yet. And, and she's, she's just like, nope, nope. Morning bird. Get out. Write the play. Acting is more important than sex, which Megan and I know, but she's just discovering. And so we have another montage of rehearsals. And we see the scene where it's the Holy Palmer's kiss scene where Viola is going to kiss the actor playing Juliet and Shakespeare gets weirdly jealous. And is like, oh, that's not how you kiss Viola de Lesseps. Let me show you. And I mean, this is a little bit not good kink play because you are not informing the people around you that you are in fact engaging in sexual things so shakespeare is not that good here what shakespeare is a horny old man bad guy white man i mean all i gotta say is shakespeare stop being horny i know this is a romance film but like I get really uncomfortable, and I, you know, you know this because you get uncomfortable. I get uncomfortable with people being supremely horny on screen around other people. There are other people around. Horniness is for private. So they're having a bunch of sex, and what I like mm -hmm. is that when they're alone having sex, Viola says Romeo lines. And Shakespeare says Juliet lines. No, I do like that a lot. I like that. I mean, I don't like sex. No. But as you stated last time, 
because they're doing theater, it's less gross for it's you. It's less gross. Also, they're doing some gender play stuff like Bernhardt Hamlet way back in episode one where I go, oh, fun. Thankfully, their chemistry while having sex and writing at the same time translates to the actors being like, oh, shit, this is good. I like being in this. And in fact, Ned Allen goes to Shakespeare in a little private moment and goes, I don't think that this play is about Mercutio. How about the title Romeo and Juliet? And at that moment, William Shakespeare goes, oh, thank God. If I really had to name this Mercutio, a lot of people were going to be confused. And then Ned has a nice somber moment and then leaves the room by saying to Shakespeare, you're a Warwickshire shithouse. (laughs) It's great. And Henslow's just like, none of this is what I asked for. There's no dog. It's not even funny. People are sad. It's going to end badly. What are you talking about? Because Shakespeare's like, it has to end badly because my relationship's going to end badly. So that's all I can write. And Mr. Fennyman's like, get the frick out. I love this play. The theater has transformed me and this is good. So Shakespeare and Viola are in bed together. And he's like, yeah, no, the play has to be bad because you're going to marry Wessex and we're not going to be together. So they can't be happy. A real boner killer. Yeah, seriously. You know what else is a boner killer? It's Sunday. Lord Wessex is outside and it's Sunday. It's Sunday, the Lord's Day. And we got to go see Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. This is just not horny all around. Virgins, Wessex, God. (laughs) The least horny subjects. But then they're just like... Well, Colin Firth, not a boner killer. Here's the thing. Colin Firth's a good actor. But So when you see him in this, you're like, boner kill. I hate him. And they're just like, no, 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 go. No, don't. Ah, no. What do we do? What do we do? We gotta go. Ah, no. I gotta go. But you have to leave. Oh, no. Oh, no. And she comes out. They get dressed so fast. Way too fast. And then who follows behind Viola? Wilhelmina, the country cousin of Viola, her escort. And it's Shakespeare in disguise. And it's completely obvious. And obviously, Wessex, of course, does not recognize Shakespeare in this disguise because... He's dumb. Suspension of disbelief. Well, the nurse recognizes and gives the biggest eye roll I've ever seen. So anyway, we go to the Queen's Palace and she's got fireworks going. Fancy. And Wessex is like, hold up, Wilhelmina. I have a question for you. And Shakespeare's like, oh God, I got caught. Have you seen Christopher Marlowe around? And Wilhelmina's like, ooh, constantly, that dog. I'm like, Shakespeare, no, it's gonna go wrong. You can't just throw people under the bus for things they didn't do. And so Viola's brought in front of the queen, and she's like, I love theater more than Wessex. And the queen's like, oh, she loves theater more than you, Wessex. And the whole court goes, And then Wessex is like, well, but, uh, and the queen goes, you have no money. Oh, and the whole court goes, oh. Megan, you are doing Judy Dench a disservice. That's like what this scene is, though. It's like, let's shit on Wessex. Oh. Yes, Megan, I agree that that's what the scene is. But Megan, my hot take that I hid away is that I don't think that Judy Dench deserved the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for this performance. 
But I think that boiling it down to just that is doing her a disservice because she is doing a good job. Oh, she is. My problem is that she is on screen for less than five minutes and that does not deserve an Oscar. If there was an Oscar category for best cameo, then she could win it. We litigated this whole thing in our previous recording. But what it comes down to is that two things need to happen. Either they need to create a best cameo Oscar or more roles like Judy Dench's role in this film need to win Oscars. Because you know who I think also should have been nominated? Ben Affleck for Ned Allen. Yeah. He's phenomenal in this movie. And the fact that only Judy Dench gets it for this small role and she won? Nuh-uh. Anyway, that's my whole thing on the Judy Dench. If you want, you can at me at Marquez the GM on Twitter. Don't at the actual podcast. At me if you want to fight about it. So Vile is like, I love plays. Because and- actors perform for me. And Elizabeth's Ooh. like, mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Actors perform for me, which they did. Every show is for her. She allows theater to happen. Therefore, theater is for her. Because she couldn't allow it not to happen. That's Smackdown. It hits. And then she's like, also, plays don't know love. They don't show love. They can't show what true love is like. So there, Viola, grow up. And Viola, taking a huge risk, goes, I think they can. And the court's like, (gasps) And the queen just goes, would you like to wager something? And William Shakespeare, Wilhelmina, I mean, sorry. Wilhelmina, the country made escort. You're right. Goes, I think it should be 50 pounds. And the queen goes, all right. Wessex, are you willing to meet such a wager for the playwright who can show us true love? And Wessex goes, but of course. And then they're like, yeah, score, got him. And they start leaving. The queen's like, by the way, Wessex. Your girl been sleeping around. Watch your girl, bro. How does she know? She can smell it on her. There's one thing that having the powers William of a queen... William Shakespeare did not have a clean penis. We need to state this. I'm certain. Like, and I want everyone listening to know that I believe his penis probably left some stank. Also, were they having unprotected sex? Yes, of course they were. I mean, they might have been using an intestine, but like... Probably not. They weren't prepared. I mean, we don't see... A girl like Viola wouldn't have intestines in her room. Like, condoms existed back then, but they... Well, there were things like intestines. Anyway. We cut to Burbage's house. Kit Marlowe busts in the door and is like, Burbage, stop having sex with Rosaline. You're going to be Faustus today. Burbage is like, "Ah, I just want to have sex. And he's all mad. Marlowe's like, I could take my place elsewhere. And Richard Burbage is like, go ahead. I've got a new play by William Shakespeare coming up. And he's like, no, you don't. That show's happening without you. At Henslow's Theater. And Burbage is like, are you kidding me? Marlo's like, don't worry. I'll show you my Paris play tomorrow. But Burbage is so mad. And he throws things around. And he breaks the bracelet that Shakespeare gave to Rosalind. And he sees Shakespeare's name in it. And he's like, (gasps) and we cut to rehearsal. And it's the Mercutio Tybalt duel. So the actor who presumably is playing Tybalt goes like, who are these men here? And Ned Allen's like, are you really going to do it like that? And it's a lovely moment of comedy before a bunch of stuff goes down. 
So they're going to start their fight. They're back into that. And as they're starting their fight, we see Burbage and his men starting to approach the Rose. And they're all angry. And then Burbage is like, I'm here. We're fighting. And everyone starts fighting. And Hensel's like, whoa, where did all these extra actors come from? This is not in the script. And Mr. Fennyman's like, this is amazing. I love this play. And John Webster's like, mm, violence. Yeah, and uh, Shakespeare knows this is real. So he goes to protect Viola and hides her under the stage and then hits his head on the stage and gets knocked under it as well. And then they start kissing under the stage. Dude, literally everyone is right there. Yeah. Things start to get out of hand. A dog starts going through. It's great. There's a dog now. And they start ruining the props. Oh, Henslow is not okay with that. Meanwhile, Shakespeare's just like, I dreamt of a shipwreck and you're cast ashore in a far country. Like Vila. It's like Twelfth Night. And then suddenly... Fennyman realizes that this is a real fight and he gets his men and goes, we must protect our investment. Yeah, that's what you're protecting. And he knocks Burbage out with a skull by booping his head to end the fight. And they are celebrating! Yay! We're at a brothel! And Thomas Kent Viola is very uncomfy with the sex workers. What? They're flirting with you. I don't like that. And then the most important development of this movie occurs. Fennyman has been asked to play the apothecary in Romeo and Juliet. Oh, it's so good. He's, He's so, so happy. excited. And then we have another typical actor moment where one of the sex workers is talking to the guy who plays the nurse. And it's just like, whoa, what's this play about? And the guy goes, well, there's this nurse. Which I love. I love jokes like that where it's like, well, it stars a minor character. And you tell the story through their perspective. Uh-oh. What? Liar revealed. Oh, yes, because one of the sex workers says, what about your wife and kid, Shakespeare? And Thomas Kent goes, wife and kids? And she runs away. And Shakespeare's like, wait, no, stop. And then someone comes in. And it's just like, Kit Marlowe's dead. He got killed in a tavern. He He is very dead. And Shakespeare goes, oh, no. So I do want to point out one historical fact yeah so this is making it seem like kit marlowe died right before the massacre at paris was gonna come out yeah but like he was alive for it to be performed at least a few times it's just it's small potatoes but like come on guys all potatoes are good don't throw away any potatoes yeah i mean that's a a lower class specialty i love small potatoes So Will's like, please, God, forgive me. I killed Kit Marlowe by telling Lord Wessex that he was stooping Viola. It's the next day. Viola's riding a horse. She's upset at Shakespeare. Yes. She's like, what the hecky, Becky? You're married? I can't believe you wouldn't tell me. And Wessex is like, oh, of course you're sad because he thinks that Viola was stooping Kit Marlowe. And Kit Marlowe's dead, so she's mourning her lover. And he's just like, oh, mourning your lover. But he doesn't say Marlowe. He just says, like, your lover. And she goes, what? Oh, my God, Shakespeare's dead. And then, yeah, she is mourning him. And she runs to the church. But what's happening at the church? The funeral. There's only one church in London? Yeah, the the church. Oh, okay. 
so they're at the funeral and she's so sad and Wessex is very smug about it and he looks over and who does he see? William Shakespeare. And Shakespeare points at him and Wessex is like, but I killed you, Banquo. He doesn't say, but I killed you. (laughs) But he gets scared and he says, vex not me or whatever, like the Macbeth scene. And then Viola's like, oh my God, he's back as a ghost. I'm so thankful. And she gets a Juliet moment. Shakespeare's like, I killed Marlowe. And she's like, oh my God, my true love killed my um, cousin Kit Marlowe and now he's banished. But what he does explain is that he loves her no matter if he has a wife and kids. They don't really resolve that. Megan. Yeah, no, he's just like, I mean, you wouldn't have married me anyway. And also like you let me sleep with you. You didn't ask <laughs> if I was married. And also, like, marriage back then was, like, very political. Yeah. And he explains, like, I got her pregnant and had to marry her. And he's just like, I'm sorry, I was the more deceived with how, where I thought our relationship was. And she was like, no, I was, because I love you, actually, still. Shakespeare's really upset about Marlowe. He literally is like, I'd exchange all of my plays to come for all of his that will never come. Eh, it's sad. Because, like, Kit Marlowe was really huge at the time. Yeah. He was a gigantic rock star of playwriting. Yeah. And so, yeah, that must have been hard. Anyway, Viola is still going to marry Wessex, but she's going to continue on as a widow of Shakespeare without ever marrying him. The play still has rehearsals, and Shakespeare's like, yeah, there's going to be an apothecary, our good friend Fannyman here. And there will be a potion and it's going to get drunk and then they'll seem dead and then they both will die. Uh, I do like to mention that Mr. Fennyman says, that's me. (laughs) When the apothecary is mentioned. And I just love that because I love pointing out, that's me. Henslow's really pissed that this is not a comedy. Yeah, yeah. And it is also important to note that Fennyman goes to Shakespeare and goes, I have a great hat. Perfect cat, blue cap. It's just like apothecaries I've seen. I think it'll work. And Shakespeare's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. You don't understand my inner turmoil. I mean, I love it because he has such a small role, but he cares so much. He's trying so hard. He's bringing in stuff from home. Yeah. He's a good guy, that Fennyman, who is going to murder someone for money. Anyway, so Shakespeare's like, hi, Viola. Rehearsal's over now. Here's an entire finished book of Romeo and Juliet. When did he have the time? When did he have the time? You can't just print out another copy. Anyway, they're like, let's make out a bunch. Well, what's different in this version is that there's the morning after scene like they experienced with the lark. and, And that's when they make out. And they do the like stay. But now she's doing Juliet lines. And uh oh. Someone's watching them make out. Who is it, Megan? John Webster. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes to the Master of Revels and tells them. Oh, that's Mr. Tilney. I just said him by his name, not his title before. And Mr. Tilney's like, you'll go far in this world, John, John Webster. Webster. <laughs> <laughs> Back at rehearsal the next day, Wessex comes in and is like, Bitch, Shakespeare. I know it was you now. I'm going to murder you in front of everyone with my sword. 
They fight. They fight, and it's a big fight, and no one's helping, and Shakespeare's using a prop epe, and it's not able to hurt anyone, and uh, I'm upset that no one's taking the weapons away <laughs> yeah, to n- stop them. No one acts here. And then Shakespeare's just like, this guy killed Marlowe. Everyone's sick him, boys. And Ned Allen's like, uh, no, he died in a bar because he refused to pay the bill. Which is what happened. He was not a gay spy for the government. How do you know? Gay spies might not want to pay bills. (laughs) It is most likely that he didn't. I don't need to pay this bill. I'm I'm a a gay gay spy. spy. It was most likely that he did not get killed because he was a gay spy. Why would a gay spy be the most famous playwright of the time? That's that's the, a great cover, Marquez. When could you be a gay spy? You're so busy writing plays. Megan, you want know a great cover for a spy? A non-conspicuous person. And Wessex is like, the Rose Harbor is the ass that shits on my name. Tilney, close it down. And he walks out. And Tilney's like, I am going to close it down, but not because he said so. I'm doing it because there's a lady, right, John Webster? And he pulls up Juliet's pants. (laughs) And much like she's the man, there's a penis under there. Uh Uh-oh. Not what you're looking for. And then Webster's like, come on. And he drops a mouse rat down Viola's doublet. And Viola freaks out, screams, and pulls off her wig. And as we mentioned in our last recording, there is no way that wig would just be placed on all of that hair that is not even tied up at all. And that she would look that good with her hair after a wig comes off. Nothing of this makes sense costume wise. I'm sorry, but as a cosplayer, I refuse. So the theater is closed and I'm sorry, you're skipping a very important line. Because everyone goes, well, well, we didn't know she was a girl. And John Webster goes, points to Shakespeare and goes, he did. I saw him kissing her bubbies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yes, that happens. So the theater is closed and Viola apologizes. She's to- like, I just wanted to act. And they don't, they're not mad at her because they know that acting is important. And one of the auditioners that we saw earlier who has a stutter who's played by Mr. Weasley in the Harry Potter films, he goes up to her and tells her, you were w- w- wonderful. And it's sad. It makes me cry. It's very good. And uh, Mr. Fennyman walks in and is like, man, I've been going over my lines. How's everybody doing? Uh-oh. What I miss? So Viola's at home. I mean, she's reading the play and crying. And then she stands up, cries Romeo again, and throws herself back down on the ground. And the whole cast is also sad. And they cry Romeo and fall back to the ground. And Burbage comes in. Uh-oh, is there going to be another fight? No. I really love this because this is like that moment in action movies where it's just like, hey, man, you kicked my ass earlier, but we've got a common enemy. Let me spit out this blood in my mouth and let's get together. Megan, it's every Dragon Ball Z episode where Goku beats up a guy and then they become best friends. It's so good. They're just like, man, we've got a theater that's not shut down. You should do Romeo and Juliet at the curtain where it actually premiered in history. Got him. 
So they make this ad that's incredible because it's just like starring Mr. Fennyman. <laughs> As yeah, the as the apothecary. Because he's the money guy, so he gets to choose what's on He gets top billing, man. I also like to say I just like that moment with Burbage because it is like theater people stick together. Yeah. Like. Censorship laws? Hell no. We're going to do this. We're going to be naked by that horse. <laughs> I assume there was issues when Equus first happened. At the Delessup's household, Viola's mom is so sad, and Wessex is an asshole, and Viola's just like, yeah, of course, I'm gonna get married right now. And William's like, I've gotta get there. I gotta tell Viola the play's happening. But it's too late. She's already dead. Married. Oh, right, married. What's the difference? <laughs> Yuck! <laughs> <laughs> I hate my wife. Viola's married to Lord Wessex. She's Lady Wessex. A touch of destiny. <laughs> One of the ads for Romeo and Juliet hits Wessex in the face. And he goes, pah, 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 pah. And he bats it away, and then Viola takes it, and she reads it, and she goes, <gasps> The play is happening! Without me! And the nurse is like, Oh, Wessex! Oh, look at me! Do a little dance! She's not dancing, but she's just like, I need to talk to you. So that Viola can run in the carriage out the other door and run. Run to the theater. Where? It is packed. Everybody wants to see this show. It's so popular. And the priest from earlier gets knocked into the theater. Uh-oh, that's gonna go wrong. Uh-oh, and William Shakespeare's playing Romeo. What? What? But he's a playwright. Oh, wait, he also acted. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. And Mr. Fennyman has a hat. That's not a problem. That's just a good hat. And the man with the stutter is revealed to be our prologue. What? And he stutters a bunch and it's rough and the audience is kind of like, eee, this is the best they could get. But then, then Mark has, he gets into the groove. It's so good. Megan, this is uh, me starting to cry again. I don't get it. There is something about seeing a theatrical performance that you think is going to be bad, be good, that makes me cry. We'll cover this when we talk about slings and arrows. Yeah, we will. I feel like we say that every other episode. We're like, slings and arrows is a really good moment for well, this. It's tough, man, because it's, I don't know, like a collected 18 hours of footage. We'll have to just do a couple months that are just slings and arrows and we go like two episodes a at a time. A huge slings and arrows retrospective. Yeah, that's what we're going to have to do. If you guys want that, please let us know. Yeah. So otherwise, we're probably going to be really nervous about doing that. Yep. But uh-oh, the amazing prologue is soured a bit because Juliet, Sam, his ball's done dropped in the middle of the night. Oh no. But it's okay because Viola's here. Well, Henslow's like Burbage. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Can you play Juliet? He doesn't say that, but I'm like, why are you going up to Burbage? Are you asking him to play Juliet? I mean, he's a great actor. He is. I mean, I'd I'd watch it. And Viola's like, I'm here. And Hensel's <laughs> like, who the hell are you? Psst, it's me, Thomas Kent. And Hensel's like, oh, get the frick backstage. He's like, you know the lines? And she's like, yeah, every single one. I By have the heart. entire play memorized. I said it a lot while having sex with William Shakespeare. <laughs> And yeah. it's great because the roles are switched up and now she's Juliet and he's Romeo. Can you, I know I asked this last time, but I once again just want to say, 
But can you really honestly close your eyes and imagine being in early modern England and looking at the stage and seeing a fucking noble woman walk out? Just got married. All they have in the town is Is gossip. gossip. So it's like, that's Lady Wessex. Gossip and theater are the only two forms of entertainment. Can you imagine if it was just like the person you love to gossip about right now? is suddenly on your favorite TV show, and you're like, she's an actress, and it's illegal? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that'd be great. That's theater. Wild. You would tell that story the rest of your short life. Uh, Yes, up until your mid-30s, when you would die of probably the plague. Shakespeare's so happy. Mm -hmm. He's just like, man, I'm gonna get murdered for this probably, but so worth it. And they don't get to see each other until backstage, until after Tybalt's slain. Which is pretty accurate. Because there's not a lot of time where one or the other's off stage. Well, never. There's like never times when both, both of, of them. them. It's only the act two prologue and then the scene after Tybalt slain. Yes. So Megan, it's Fenniman's big moment. Ready? He's prepared so hard. He has his nice little hat. This is so upsetting to me because this is almost the exact opposite of the prologue bit. Where he's bad? Where he's bad. Well, I mean, he's not bad. He's bad, though. He steps over Romeo's line. So So you're like, oh, I'm pumped to see Fennyman do this. And then you're just like, well, that scene made no sense. They can't all be good. Meanwhile, we see that guards have begun to approach the theater from far, far away, I guess, walking slowly by foot. Well, they've got to walk regimented and they've got to walk slow. The streets are so busy, Megan. They gotta give time for the audience to fall in love with this show and fall in love with Juliet and be like, thus with the kiss I die, cry, cry, cry is more like it. And Juliet wake up and have them all gasp and then (gasps) be like, where is Romeo? And have the nurse be like, dead. Very funny. Super funny. I love it. It's great. She got invested. And everyone is like, this shit slaps. (laughs) I love Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Faust is who? And the priest is like, hell yeah, baby. I'm all about theater now. And the stutter man doesn't stutter at all in the epilogue. He just rocks it. And then the show ends and everyone's just in awed silence, which is terrifying as an actor, I can imagine. And you see them all like, oh God, was it terrible? And then thunderous applause. It's so nice. It's magic, Megan. It's, it, is. It, it is one of the few times that we've covered like a very magical moment yeah. on our podcast. Like This film has a little bit of magic in it. I think that moment right before they clap and then the clapping is like a perfect little scene. Yeah. Like top 10 moments in film of just catharsis. Yeah. You get a lot of catharsis there, and it feels good. And then they ruin it because Shakespeare and Viola start making out on stage, and I'm like, literally everyone can see you. But it's okay because those trudging men are here now with the master of revels, Mr. Tilney, and he's like, this is an illegal play. It's indecent and disgusting. But who else is here, Marquez? Takes off her cloak like a tuxedo mask. It's Queen Elizabeth. And she says, Psh, the queen doesn't attend public exhibitions of lewdness, so you better change your tune, Tilney. Megan, is she Dr. Frankenfurter? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And she's just like, let me see Mr. Kent. And then 
Viola curtsies and then is like, oh, wait, I mean, I'm a man and bows and it's silly. Elizabeth is like, come on, girl. I'm giving you an out. <laughs> it's like the second big eye roll we get in the film. Just like, come on, Viola. And then the queen's just like, oh, Tilney. I mean, that's a man with a penis. I know women in men's roles. I know something about a woman in a man's profession. And, oh, man, the Oscar voters are like, oh, my God, such a great performance. That one line. And then she's like, oh, if only Wessex was here. And Wessex's like, I am here. My life's the worst. And she's like, well, you lost your wager. What do you think, young boy? Boy, what did you think? And John Webster's just like, I like when she stabs herself. (laughs) I'm John Webster. And the queen's like, okay, moving on. Next person. (laughs) Everything is resolved. Everyone's happy. And they're leaving the theater. And the queen tells Viola to tell Shakespeare that she'd like to commission a play, maybe for Christmas time. And the queen's also like, uh, Thomas, could you please go back and find Viola and bring her back out here? Because, um, Viola needs to leave. And so we have a final scene between Viola and William Shakespeare, and it is... Fine. Fine. It's it's such like a hard like wow climax. And this is really great. And then she's like, oh okay, it ends. This movie just kind of ends. A few things, Megan. Yeah. Shakespeare wants to quit theater, and Viola's like, you can't do that. If my hurt is to be that you write no more, then I shall be the sorrier. And. Shakespeare's like, that's fine. I'll write a play about a absolute wretched, sad wreck of a man. He just loves this woman and he can't be with her. And we're like, okay, yeah, it's Orsino. Okay. Except, except it's not. Because that's not, not what Twelfth Night's about. No. Never is Orsino sad that he can't be with Viola. He said that he can't be with Olivia, but it's not the same. No. They're trying to make a metaphor here between what Viola and Shakespeare are going through and what happens in Twelfth Night. But that's not it. <laughs> it's not what happens no. in Twelfth Night. No, but the two of them come up with Twelfth Night, like the entirety of it, on yes. the spot right now. And honestly, mostly Viola <laughs> does. So once again, Shakespeare did not come up with his play. And there's this absolute piece of shit servant who thinks he's so great and they just like tie him up and put him in a dark (laughs) room and torture him. Viola, what are you talking about? They like come up with the entirety of Twelfth Night and by that I mean the bare bones of Twelfth Night, but like, oh wow, it's Twelfth Night. But it's going to take him like seven years to write it. Yeah, and she asked point. she asked for a play for Christmas. And and yeah, so they're making us think that it's going to be Twelfth Night is the next one because she wants it for Twelfth Night, but Twelfth Night doesn't come out until 1601. Man, they were so good up until this point. Yeah, they're just like, oh shit, wrap it up, wrap it up. Uh, we also find out that Viola gives the 50 pounds to Shakespeare. And like we mentioned before, now we can become a partner with Burbage. So... He's becoming the real William Shakespeare now, and that doesn't really matter. No, but he's just like, you're never going to age for me, nor fade, nor die, which is also very similar to the Sonnet 18 Summer's Day sonnet that he gave to her before. So like, you only got one sonnet, man, whatever. And then she's like, write me well. And he's like, she'll be my heroine for all time. Okay, what about like Rosaline and all of your other heroines? 
Do you think Viola is the most well-known or strongest heroine of Shakespeare? She's not. I think that's like Beatrice. I would agree that it's Beatrice. Like Twelfth Night is an amazing play, but I don't think Viola is an amazing character. No. But but yeah, that's that's pretty much that's it. pretty much it. She crashes and washes up on a shore, and, and it's maybe a metaphor, or maybe it's what happens, and she actually does get stuck in some weird Twelfth Night limbo. But she walks across a beach, and that's the end. We did it, Megan. Again, twice. A film so nice, we did it twice. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. A lot of films we've done, if we had to either put out bad audio, scrap the audio completely and throw out the episode, or re-record it. I'm glad it wasn't a film that we did not like. If it was almost any other thing we've done, I'd just be like, it's just not happening. If it was a bad film, it would just be canned. Yeah, it would just be like, okay, cool, we're never doing that film. Fate said no. Yep. A few things, Megan. Yeah. Mark Norman, the screenwriter for the film, had this to say about Shakespeare adaptations. If you want to write about Shakespeare, you better have something new to say. And I think that that's a great microcosm for what we do here on Avant Bard. Yeah, like that's why we don't just cover every adaptation. We mostly do things that are loosely adapted or inspired by. Just do something different. Do something new. If you don't, then you're just kind of boring. Yeah, it's like, oh, cool. You put on that play that thousands upon thousands of other people have put on. Yeah, why? So I have something, Megan. Yeah. What did Roger Ebert (gasps) think of this movie? I just have one thing that Roger Ebert said about this film. He gave it four stars. He loved it. But what he said about this film was... A movie like this is a reminder of the long thread that connects Shakespeare to the kids opening tonight in a storefront on Lincoln Avenue. You get a theater, you learn the lines, you strut your stuff, you hope there's an audience, you fall in love with another member of the cast, and if sooner or later your revels must be ended, well, at least you're reveled. That's such a good quote. As a line that is mostly misattributed to Shakespeare once said, Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Oh, put it on my Pinterest board. So I think if Shakespeare saw this play, this is what he'd say. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this and this gives life to me, William Shakespeare. He would also say, that's one damn fine actor you gotta play me. (laughs) He'd be like, Ooh, yes, tell people I look like that. I would like to roll in the hay with a little William Shakespeare. I'm bisexual. He would say that directly into the camera. He would look directly into it. He'd be like, it's 2021? Yeah, I'll say it. I'm bisexual. We didn't have a word for it back then because sexuality was kind of fluid and the only thing that was really illegal was being a lesbian. (laughs) Yeah, there's no fluids in that. Get it? Yeah, yeah, Ryan. So Marquez. MVP? I could give you my MVP, Ryan. Is it Fennyman? Yeah, mine is Fennyman. I just think that the arc of him discovering his love for theater is just so beautiful. It just brings me such joy. It It is what I connect to because I haven't had a whirlwind theater romance in my life. So I'm like, eh, Romeo and Viola, fine. Now, Mr. Fennyman, 
he found his love of theater through watching plays. And that's who I connect with because that's my experience. Yeah, I mean, he's like the everyman in this. I mean, first he was going to kill someone for money. Well, but you know. He's also just the cynic who became a believer. He's the main girl in all of the Hallmark Christmas movies. Yes. You know what? He's my MVP. Hell yeah, Megan. Woo! All right. Megan? Yeah. What rating would you give Shakespeare in Love? Last time I counted how many times we were told, like, I don't know, it's a mystery, and, like, Ethel the Pirate's Daughter, but I deleted that note after recording. Yeah. I have one. So, go ahead. I would rate this the two times that we recorded this episode out of two. (laughs) (laughs) I would rate this... The six hours we spent trying to fix that episode (laughs) out of seventh day of the week is Sunday to some people. (laughs) And Sunday is when the queen sees you to see if you're a breedable sub. I promise that our answers were much clever on the other audio. They were so good. I don't... It's fine. It's, it's fine, man. I deleted it. It was like blank number. I told you what my two were. Marquez had good ones too, but I know mine more. If you would like to alleviate us of the stress that we went through when we had to try to fix that audio, you can follow us online on all social media platforms at Avant Bard Pod. Just tell us it's okay. It's okay, friends. And it's if you, okay. And if you really want to alleviate some stress, you can support us monetarily at patreon.com slash avantbardpod. Bloopers for this week's episode will be up next week. Maybe some of the bloopers from the scrapped episode will be there too, but no promises there. The audio is pretty horrendous. Thank you so much for listening. And I will cut your throat, Anon. He says that in the movie. But actually, I'll, I'll see you, Anon. Avant Bard is created by Matthew James Marquez and Megan Charlow. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash avantbardpod. We would like to thank Riley Allen for the creation of our theme music, Cloverkin for our logo artwork, and everyone in the audience for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Avant Bard, you can visit us on all social media platforms at avantbardpod.